Um, I'll pray and ask for God's help as we come uh, to this passage. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that you've given us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I thank you that you care about our relationships here on earth. Thank you that you give equal concern for those who are both married and unmarried. Uh, please help me as I teach uh, your words now, uh, particularly to the unmarried. Help us to all be encouraged and be built up by them. Uh, please use me and my weakness to preach faithfully and apply thoughtfully as I ought. And please give us all hearts to receive your word by faith and apply it to ourselves uh, where we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you had to finish this sentence, what would you say? The single life is sorely missed. The single life is fun, average, it's okay, painful, hard. Uh, when I was single, there were, would have been periods when I would have said the single life is great, uh, but there were other moments when I would have said the single life is just awful. Uh, one such time struggle came in my, my early working life when all my close friends just started getting together, getting married. Some of you might have been in that phase. I just felt pretty lonely in that time of life. I remember a wedding I went to during this period where almost all the other guests at this wedding were kind of coupled up. Now, this wouldn't have been such a big issue, but for the wedding dance at the reception. You know where I'm going with this. After the married couple had had their kind of first wedding dance, this enthusiastic MC invites all the other couples to go and join them for their dance. And literally, all but one or two other people left their chairs and flocked to that dance floor. I just remember sitting there completely on my own, uh, feeling totally left out, and my loneliness on full display for all of those people to see. Maybe some of you have had one or two experiences like that. Our singleness can be really enjoyed, but it can also be a real struggle. And in the struggle, you sometimes get the well-meaning things people say that just don't really hit the mark. You know, the whole, don't worry, plenty of fish in the sea. Well, is there? I mean, not everyone gets married. What if I'm in this for the long haul? What about the whole, singleness is a gift, so enjoy it. Okay, well, how can I enjoy something, though, that I actually just can't stand at the moment? And then there's the, don't worry, God's got you in this. I, I know that's true, but how? How does God help me and have me in this? See, in tonight's passage, God speaks into the topic of singleness. And thankfully, he doesn't come to us with kind of cliched one-liners. His word gives us all the way to think about singleness that is encouraging, honest, wise, helpful. And there are really four things uh, four ways I see God helping us uh, to think about singleness in 1 Corinthians 7 tonight. As we think, think about singleness, we need to think of the identity God wants you to have, the blessings God wants you to see, the wisdom God wants you to use, and the help God wants you to know. Uh, this talk, while very much kind of applied to the married among us, 
uh, will have its application and insight for the married too. So as always, each of us needs to be listening to God's word. And those are the four things we're going to think about. And we're going to look at the first point now. The identity God wants you to have. Uh, Single believers, as with all believers, are called to have their identity firmly placed in Christ. Uh, This is crucial because our culture often promotes romantic love and being with someone as the place to find one's greatest satisfaction and identity. Uh, This is all through Hollywood, all through the entertainment industry. Uh, In the movie Jerry Maguire, you get that famous line spoken by Jerry to his wife Dorothy. says, I love you, you complete me. And that's, I think, how much of our culture, particularly our pop culture, tends to think about this topic. We, We need to find a romantic partner in some sense to be completed. Thus, to be single is therefore to be somehow incomplete. Or just think about most Disney or Pixar movies in the last, up to the last sort of 10 to 15 years. The main character almost always has to have some love interest that kind of ends in some kind of happily ever after. Again, the subliminal message of our pop culture is unless you're paired up, there is no happily ever after. That's actually why, just as an aside, I appreciate Frozen which my my daughters love, because it's one of the few Disney movies that highlighted the bond between sisters rather than lovers. And in a house full of daughters, I'm all about healthy sister relationships. But it's not just in pop culture, is it? Even in the church, we can speak and act in ways that imply people need someone else in their life to be completed. Vaughan Roberts, a single man who is a pastor in the UK, speaks about a friend of his who belonged to a a young adult church group called Pairs and Spares. Even in Christian community, single people can be made to think, made made to feel like spare parts in their families, their social groups, their churches. See, the subliminal message of our world around us tends towards seeing singleness and celibacy as a problem to be solved, a state to be changed. But did you notice what Paul seems to be saying in this passage that we just heard? He seems to be saying something very different, doesn't he? He seems to be saying that when a person has their identity in Christ, they actually don't have to change their situation or their relationship status, providing it's not sinful. You see him starting to make this case in verse 17. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when when God called him. This is what I commanded all the churches. Again in verse 20, let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Again in verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. See, some believers in the Corinthian church were thinking, well, unless I change X about my circumstances, my life is kind of somehow less honouring to God, less less purposeful, less complete. And we kind of got a glimpse of that last week uh, with some in the church who were thinking they kind of had to be out of their relationship with their unbelieving spouse. In verses 17 to 23, others appeared to be wanting to change aspects of their lives in different ways. Their ethnic identity through circumcision or reversing circumcision, however that happens. 
or their social standing through gaining freedom from slavery. But it's like Paul was saying, you don't need to change your situation in life. Uh, if you know Christ, you have a glorious new identity that far outstrips anything the world's going to offer you. Christ gives you unthinkable value and purpose in God's eyes. Think about how revolutionary that would have been for a first century slave to hear. See, to be a slave in Paul's day was the absolute lowest rung on the social ladder. And yet even to Christian slaves, to whom the world at the time unashamedly said, you are a lesser person. Imagine hearing that and hearing the words uh, from God, you have value, you have worth. You share in the greatest privilege imaginable because you belong to Christ. So Paul says to them, yes, if you can gain your freedom, by all means, go for it, verse 21. But that's not going to make you more loved. That won't make you more accepted in God's eyes. You are loved now. You can live for God now, slave, in your circumstances. Why? It tells us because in verse 22, he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Uh, if you're a believer here tonight, you too are the Lord's freed man or freed woman. Uh, through his death and resurrection, Christ has freed you from the power and the penalty of your sin. And that is a wonderful privilege. Christ, uh, you will no longer stand before God on the judgment day and be found guilty of your sin and your rebellion against God. You are at peace with God now and you'll be welcomed by him as one of his children, forgiven, accepted, adopted into his family. Paul is helping us to ground our identity in Christ in these words. We are saved by him and we are to live for him. Whatever our situation or status is, married or unmarried, Jew or Greek, slave or free. So to the singles among us, to stay on the topic of tonight, God is saying don't be a slave to the world around you. Don't buy into the pop culture message. If you're in Christ, you don't have to change your relationship status to be more faithful, more valued, or more complete in God's eyes. You see, in our sex-saturated, romantically obsessed world, single people are often taught to think of singleness and celibacy as the big problem in their life that needs to be fixed. I remember seeing posters for that movie 40-Year-Old Virgin when it first came out and thinking, man, our culture just thinks celibacy and singleness is a huge joke, a huge problem. But singleness is not your biggest problem. Sin is your biggest problem. God's judgment is your biggest problem. And that, says Paul, has been fixed by the one who bought you at a great price, verse 23. Jesus has secured your forgiveness at great cost to his own life, of giving his own life in your place. Jesus gives you what you most need. Jesus brings you into a loving relationship with God, and in that sense, Jesus really does complete you. And if you're not yet a Christian, that's actually the message you need to hear tonight, above all things. But the difficulty is, I think, that we 
often forget the glory of our identity in Christ. I remember, I remember this being the case for me, right? When I found singleness a massive drain. See, in my darker moments in those times, I tend to view Christ as almost like a, a consolation prize. You know, I, I don't have the really good gift of marriage that I want, but people keep telling me I've got Jesus. I mean, I guess that's something, right? But Jesus is not just something. He's everything. Marriage can be good, but like everything in this world, it is tainted by sin. We saw that last week by the fact that we were talking about divorce. And it will pass away. By contrast, the life you have in Christ will never end and the glory of that relationship will last forever. Our identity in Christ leads us to think not just in terms of this life but the next. And and it's that kind of otherworldly view that I think Paul is getting at in those words a little bit later in verses 29 to 31 where he speaks of those who have wives needing to be as those who have none, those who weep as those who did not weep. See, all the joys and the challenges of this world are passing away and we therefore need to ground ourselves and our identity, not in them, but in Christ and actually be heavenly minded. Verse 31, the world in its current form is passing away. So that's the first point to make on the topic of singleness. It's actually the point we make in every situation in the Christian life around your identity in Christ. But the second uh, point is the blessings that God wants you to see of singleness. A singleness, according to God, contains real blessings. Unfortunately, sometimes it's spoken of though as, as though it were a curse. Uh, When the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Kennedy wrote his opinion in support of same-sex marriage a number of years ago, he spoke of those who could not marry as those condemned to live in loneliness. Uh, One writer for the Washington Post, who's not a Christian, accused the justice of single shaming and rightly, I think, pointed out that there are actually many people who believe their singleness is a blessing, not a condemnation or a curse. But you don't have to go to an article in the Washington Post to get a defense of singleness. God actually gives you a defense of singleness in this passage. In fact, God views the single life with such regard that his apostle Paul actually counsels many in the Corinthian church to opt for singleness as the better choice in their circumstances at the time. You see that in verse 38. He who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. And again to the widow in verse 40, she's happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion, that is single. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's already spoken of singleness as a gift from God, not a curse, a blessing. The challenge is that many of us look at singleness as the gift I'd rather not receive thank you. Thank you for the thought, God, but I'm actually really not into this particular gift that you've given me. Uh, Maybe you'd like to give it to someone else. Uh, But we need to remember who the gift giver is. He's not like some work colleague in a Kris Kringle who doesn't really know us or care about us and therefore just gives us a pot plant that's kind of ugly. 
He's the God of the Bible who says, uh, who the Bible says is profoundly good and who never makes mistakes and, and does not shortchange people. And so if he gives a gift, even if it's just for a time, we need to trust that he has a good purpose for that gift in our lives. And Paul actually says there are two obvious good purposes you can see. Uh, single people are spared the troubles of marriage, says Paul, and two, single people can devote themselves more fully to God's work. Two blessings, says Paul. So first, spared troubles. Single people are spared the troubles of marriage that sometimes come. That's what Paul says in verse 25. Now about virgins, that is those who are not yet married, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one by the, who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. See, there are many great blessings of marriage, but there are real challenges and complexities too. Sometimes we forget this. See, in marriage, everything kind of has to be communicated, consensus found on basically everything, where you'll live, how you'll spend your time together, what you eat for dinner, who you hang out with. They're just the little things. And where the communication between married couples isn't great, these complexities can kind of morph into real points of hostility and frustration. And sometimes these challenges and complexities of marriage can be strained by external factors like one or the other losing their job or the lockdowns of a pandemic, or a new medical diagnosis. I actually think a number of married couples discovered this during the last two years of COVID. All these challenges that were kind of present but maybe managed prior to COVID suddenly became overwhelming under the new pressures of isolation, lockdown. Marriage, particularly when it's under, the severe, under severe external pressure, can actually have challenges as well as blessings. And it seems that there were real external pressures in Corinth. The present distress that Paul speaks of here is likely a reference to a kind of famine that was happening at the time or or possibly even increased persecution by a particularly diabolical emperor of the day. But either way, Paul knows that this present distress will just exacerbate the kind of the challenges of marriage and he wants to spare the single Corinthians of some of those. It's kind of like he's saying, guys, it's not actually a bad thing that you don't have to go through some of those troubles. Now, if you get married, you haven't sinned, says Paul. I just want to spare you some of the real challenges of marriage, particularly in a time like this. So that's one benefit unmarried people have. But that kind of has a bearing on the second one that Paul highlights, undistracted devotion. You see, single people can be more fully devoted to God's work, says Paul. Uh, their interests are less divided. I remember when we used to go away for about eight days a year on these Bible college mission trips. Uh, these missions were a time when we'd go to some town or city in Australia, we'd spend a week sharing Christ with people, uh, working to support a local church. 
Uh, but for the married guys, and the married guys with kids particularly, uh, mission was a time when their wives would have to bear the full kind of load of childcare for a solid eight days. And so for a number of us, college mission always had kind of had this tension uh, going on with it. See, on the one hand, we were concerned with the mission, sharing Christ, encouraging the local church there. And on the other hand, we were concerned for our wives back home and how they were coping under the load. I remember when we did this mission trip to Fremantle, uh, our middle daughter, Esther, who was just a baby at the time, uh, got really sick and Ruth was just getting hammered by tiredness day after day. Uh, The reality is that our important ministry to our spouse and children can sometimes have real impact on our capacity to minister to others, to the wider church. See, as good as that mission was in Fremantle, I did find it actually a bit challenging, burdened in the evenings by the needs of my wife and kids. But my single buddy, he found that mission great, His evenings were spent hanging out with people at the local pub, having good gospel conversations. See, this is the kind of thing that I think Paul is getting at in verses 32 and following. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Now I want to just point out here that Paul is not saying that investing in your marriage or your kids or your home life is somehow bad or a lesser form of ministry. In other letters like Ephesians and Colossians, which are up there, Paul speaks of loving your wife, your husband, as God-honoring things to do, ministries of love. What I think Paul is referring to here is the way in which a single person is often not as limited in the who and the how of their service to Christ. A married person is more confined in ministry to their spouse and kids. A single person, by and large, is more able to love and serve in the church and wider community. Their interests in Christian service are are less divided in that sense. Now, this is not to say that single people don't have busy lives or other important priorities. Paul is simply making the point that the absence of such a massive responsibility of marriage does allow for more freedom in the way you serve Christ. And actually, one of the things I have loved to see about Bundy is the way so many unmarried people give of themselves in that way to serve Christ in so many different ways with their capacities. I love seeing you serving in Sunday school and kids club and youth group. I hear of singles inviting people over to encourage them with meals. I see singles on Tuesday nights bringing their friends who aren't Christians and their family members to Christianity Explored, giving up their Tuesday nights for that. 
I see you serving on Sundays. I see you offering late night rides home after growth group, gathering at snack events. It's actually wonderful to be a part of a church where single people do use the blessings of the gift of God for those purposes. A singleness has its challenges, but God says it has real advantages too. So if you're unmarried, God's word is encouraging you to see those blessings, to give thanks for them even, and to continue to give yourself to serve the one who first served you. Elizabeth Elliot, who was the widow of the slain missionary Jim Elliot, gives a good reminder to make use of the gifts God gives you today, regardless of what gift you might have tomorrow. Uh, she says this, singleness of the single life may only be a stage of... We've lost that one. There she is. Uh, the single life may only be a stage of a life's journey, but even a stage is a gift. God may replace it with another gift, but the receiver accepts his gifts with thanksgiving. This gift for this day. The life of faith is lived one day at a time. And it has to be lived, not always looked forward to as though the real living were around the next corner. It is today for which we are responsible. God still owns tomorrow. God wants you to see the blessings, the advantages of singleness and use them. But third, the wisdom God wants you to see. Because marriage does remain an option for singles, but it requires thoughtfulness. Uh, I suspect that for a number of people who are single and listening to this, uh, you might be thinking, look, I do think my identity is in Christ. I'm sold out on that. And I do hear what Paul is saying about the real advantages of singleness, and I'm trying to live them out as best as I can. But Chris, I just still desire to be married. Is that somehow wrong? Well, God's answer to you here is, no, it's okay to get married. It's okay to have that desire. You see this even as Paul is highlighting the benefits of singleness. Verse 28, if you get married, you haven't sinned. If a virgin marries, virgin marries she has not sinned. Verse 36, if any man thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, if she's getting beyond the usual age for marriage, he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He's not sinning. They can get married. There are, marriages, there are marriage and betrothal customs going on here that we may not be familiar with, but Paul's point is that if you want to get married, you can get married. If you don't, well, that's good and fine too, verse 37. But he who stands firm in his heart, who was under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. So then he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. See, there is freedom on the question of marriage. So we need God's wisdom to figure it out, basically. Now, some of you who are single right now may be trying to figure out how to think wisely about the potential option of marriage. Well, there are three things I see that this passage is asking you to wisely consider as you think about that. Desire, timing, person. So first, you need to wisely consider your desire for marriage. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, our culture tends us 
uh, tends to tell us that it is kind of abnormal to actively remain single and celibate. And so I think we can all feel that push to just couple up and get married. But for some of you, that desire may actually not be there, and that's okay. Uh, Some Christians may just lack the desire to get married for no other reason than they just don't want to. That's okay. Others may desire the single life because they don't want the kind of troubles that Paul speaks of earlier on top of some of the other real struggles that are already going on in their life. That's okay. Some will want to be freed up to serve Christ in some other way, as Paul has been talking about, and that's great. Jesus also talks about those who choose to live like eunuchs, that is, single and celibate, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And then others of you, well, may not have the sexual desire for a member of the opposite sex. And therefore, marriage as God defines it between a man and a woman may not be a wise option for you at this stage. See, wisdom will lead us to think carefully about the desires of our hearts when it comes to marriage. And we need to be a church that recognizes there is choice in marriage and not to assume people need to progress onto that state. Our questions like, Oh, aren't you in a relationship yet? Um, Or I see you're still single. They're sometimes not that helpful because they kind of imply that there is a necessary progression towards marriage for every person. Uh, A better question might be, if you actually wanted to talk about marriage, could just be, what are your thoughts on marriage? Is that something you desire? Well, that's the first thing. We've got to wisely consider the desire. Do you have the desire for marriage? But second, timing. Uh, You need to wisely consider timing when it comes to marriage. Is marriage actually a possibility in your life right now? This passage reminds us that there are times when it may just be unwise to get married, even when there's a great desire for that. Paul speaks about that present distress in verse 26 as a moment of bad timing in the Corinthian church. And so out of concern for them, he lets them know that getting married in such circumstances may just cause way too many problems. And actually, we need to hear that concern. See, there are other circumstances in life where getting married will unwisely bring in many other issues to your life. Uh, We thought a couple of weeks ago about that 17-year-old boy who desires to get married but actually just needs to wrestle with the fact that timing is not on his side. Uh, There may be other timing factors too that will make things difficult. Study demands, overseas deployment for work or for mission, a lack of a regular income. You might be coming off a bad breakup and you just need time to process that. You might also think that you just simply haven't had enough time to get, the, to get to know the person that you're dating. So it'd be distressing to find out on the other side of marriage that your spouse has some kind of anger issue or pornography issue that you actually never knew about it because you just didn't feel like you had the time to ask some of those questions in depth. And at this point, that kind of leads us to the, th- the third uh, third point of wisdom. You need to wisely consider what sort of person you would marry. 
And we see this consideration coming out in Paul's words. You see it there in the final words of the unmarried widows of verse 39. A wife is bound as long as uh, to, a wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wants, only in the Lord. Uh, as many of you all know, the Bible does actually list a few explicit things that Christians are to keep in mind when thinking about the who of marriage. Uh, so the person needs to be, according to the Bible, a member of the opposite sex, can't be a close relative, thankfully, can't already be married, that's adultery. But here, Paul focuses on another explicit thing God wants Christians to keep in mind. Christians are to marry Christians. That's what he's saying when he says, only in the Lord. Now, some have argued that the Bible doesn't really say Christians can't marry people who aren't Christians, but that's not actually true. See, throughout the whole Bible, throughout the whole Old Testament, God commanded his covenant people to marry only those within the covenant. And in Proverbs 31, where the author is speaking about the wife of noble character, he says that it's a woman who fears the Lord who is to be praised. You see, God wants his people, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament, to marry those who fear him. Moreover, the New Testament describes marriage as a partnership that pictures the redeeming love of Christ for his church, and both parties, not just one, are called to see their marriage as about Jesus, not just themselves. Now, in the Christian community, some believers will already be married to unbelievers, and we talked about that and its complexities and also God's encouragement in that situation last week. But the point here is that wisdom and actually obedience to Jesus will lead us to marry only one who is in the Lord, a Christian. But in many ways, that's not the kind of totality of the matter, is it? Because Paul has actually spoken earlier about the idea of being a slave of Christ. It's an image that speaks of Christ and his gospel being front and center in the lives of a Christian, in the life of a Christian. And therefore, I think one of the questions that must surely be asked is how much does Christ and the gospel rule the life of this person? Is Jesus more of a side interest for them, a label that they wear? Or does he actually rule their world? See, that's actually a crucial question to ask because it has implications for your life if you marry that person. Because if Jesus really matters to someone, living his way will matter to them. Thus, if Jesus matters, it follows that kindness will matter because Jesus calls us to kindness. If Jesus matters, forgiveness will matter. For he calls us to forgive as we've been forgiven. If Jesus matters, grace will matter. Repentance of sin will matter. Thoughtfulness will matter. Compassion will matter. These are all characteristics that make a marriage work. See, we need to look for a person who loves Jesus, but we also need to be a person who loves Jesus ourselves. Uh, if you're single and wondering about the idea of marriage, I would encourage you to think wisely about the question of desire, timing, and person. 
If you're unsure about one or more of these, I would encourage you to hold off getting married, at least for the time being. But as many of you know, that's not necessarily easy to do, which leads to the final thing as we come to a close that I think God is saying to singles. Uh, There is the help God wants you to know. See, I suspect that there are many of you here who are actually fine in your singleness. But I know that there will be others of you who are really struggling. Perhaps just from the pure loneliness of the moment, perhaps with a particular struggle of sexual self-control, or maybe from the grief of seeing your friends marry off and perhaps drift away from you. Singleness can actually be really hard. And maybe you're just at that point tonight. Maybe you've just kind of had it with singleness. Maybe you're thinking, if I have to go to one more wedding where I get the message that two are better than one from Ecclesiastes, I'm just going to crack. If that's you, I want to finish by briefly mentioning three sources of help that that God gives. Very briefly, God gives you the gift of himself. Did you notice back in verse 24, you can look at it in your Bibles, Paul says, brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Remain with God. It's easy to miss that, but it's actually vitally important. The single Christian does not do life alone at a fundamental level. He or she does life with God. God has given his people his spirit. And he calls us to cry out to him in times of struggle and ask for his grace to sustain us. And boy, he's a good God. Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God will never leave you or forsake you, so in your struggle, keep speaking with him. Keep asking him for help to endure this moment and actually to grow in faith and love through your suffering. Second, God gives you his people. We all long for deep relationships in which we are known and loved, and the church should be the place where single people find this. Later in chapter 12, which we'll get to at the end of the year, Paul will speak of God's purpose within the church community, and he'll use these words that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part's on it, every part rejoices with it. See, we need to be a church where we have equal concern for each other, not just focusing on our spouse or a family or our little friendship clique. They might take up specific time and energy for us, and rightly so in some in some ways, but we are not to neglect the single person who is actually suffering among us. Now, maybe that means going to the occasional snack event that you might not usually go to, just so you can get connected a little more to one or two single people or some other social event. Uh, On the 3rd of July, we are running a single-minded conference We'll be giving you more details about it to come, but this is the sort of thing that I think can benefit all of us as a 5 p.m. congregation.
Because singleness is not just something that certain individuals need to think about biblically. Churches need to think about it so that we can be better equipped to love and to serve our single brothers and sisters. 30th of July, I think. Is that what it says? Okay. But finally, God gives you the promise of a better future to come. Now, you may not have marriage now, and you may never have it, but you do have a better and lasting relationship with Christ, as we've thought about. See, like everything else in this world, earthly marriage, as we've talked about, passes away, verse 31. But not so with your relationship with Christ and the promise that he gives you that promise that will last into eternity. And so I just want to finish with Vaughan Roberts' words, which he wrote in a helpful article on this matter, because I just think he sums it up better than I can. I'll finish with them. Uh, Many who are presently single will one day marry. Others will remain single throughout their lives. But no Christian is single forever. Human marriage reflects the marriage God wants to enjoy with his people forever. The Bible speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom who will one day return to take his bride, the church, to be with him in in the perfect new creation. On that day, all pain will disappear, including the pain of a difficult marriage or singleness. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and a great shout will be heard. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Revelation chapter 7. After we had spoken about this, an elderly lady said to me, I can't wait for my wedding day. We should all share the same hope. And we can already experience something of that intimate marriage with Christ here on earth by the work of the Spirit in our lives. Human relationships do matter, but none is nearly as important as our relationship with Jesus. I'll pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful identity we have in Christ, whether single or married, I pray that we would all find joy and satisfaction in that identity. I pray that you would strengthen those who are single among us, help them to see the blessings of their situation and to live in faithful service to you. Help them to think wisely about the possibility of marriage and to find comfort from from you when uh, the road is difficult. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.